Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, is there a strategy behind Trump's latest tweets telling people to go back to where they came from? North Korea is rethinking whether they'll restart missile tests. And the Apollo moon landing is celebrating its 50th anniversary this week. And a lot of Canadians were involved. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Feel free to weigh in on what we are chatting about, Facebook and Twitter, if you're into social media uh, as well. That's where you will find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you. Go back to where you came from. Um, That is the commentary today. And, you know, I think the reason this resonates for me um, is my mother was an immigrant. So... I remember her telling us people would say she was like she quit school in grade eight because um, the kids kept making fun of her accent. So our mother said, all right, you're going to quit school. You're going to work. And pretty much from 14, 15 on worked in a factory. Uh, So when you hear lines like go back to where you came from, um, mm, I just can't see how that can move forward. Uh, Or is it a strategy? Uh, of course, what we are talking about is uh, a series of tweets by Donald Trump and and four progressive Democratic women uh, in the Democratic Party who uh, he has decided to uh, set his sights on and, and, and are in his crosshairs and basically said these people should go back to where they came from, even though three of the four of them uh, uh, are actually born here. Uh, one was born in some, the other one, the fourth one, born in Somalia. But they're all four Canadian citizens and elected representatives in the United States of America. So, um, you know, many have have questioned: Is this too far? Is this going over the line? Others have said: oh, It's Trump. What do you expect? This is what you're going to hear. Um, but what does it mean moving forward? Is this a strategy to try to, I guess, um, uh, ID the? Uh, Democratic Party or paint the narrative that the Democratic Party is these uh, four people as they try to choose new leadership and such and and are obviously going through a bit of identity crisis as they figure out uh, who is going to lead their party into uh, the next election. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington and he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. You know, it seems every time we talk to you guys, uh, it's, what do you think of this? And we, and we all think that the world's about to crumble. Is this just another Trumpism? Is this just another headline? Does this have any more weight than anything else that we've been talking about over the last several months? Well, this is one of the most kind of astonishing things that the president has done over the last couple of weeks, even the last couple of months. And I think that it is going to carry some weight going forward because this is something that's now making its way to the floor of the House tonight with a resolution to basically condemn the president's words that he used, not just on Twitter, but when he verbalized this outside of the White House uh, on Monday when he was speaking at an event. So while there is some uh, you know, outrage from what Trump usually says going forward, I think that what we're following right now is kind of the heartbreak that's been uh, that's kind of been put in place after these words that the president said, because it's impacting not just these four congresswomen of color, but it's impacting a larger uh, and growing number of minorities across the United States who are becoming an, uh, an ever increasing number of, of, of the vote when it comes to the Democrats and Republicans. Is this another issue of it depends on who you ask what their impression is, or is this more divisive? 
Well, it's divisive if you're looking at it from a Democratic point of view, because the Republicans are lining up behind the president right now. They are uh, kind of standing with the president's words, uh, leadership. Uh, Kevin McCarthy earlier today at the House basically said, no, this isn't racist. This is simply just political. Democrats are looking at it through a completely different eye. They're looking at it as, look, this is the president who's been uh, who's been accused of being misogynistic in the past, who's been accused of being a xenophobe in the past, who's been accused of being racist in the past, continuing to put these kind of racist tropes out there. So Democrats are viewing this through one eye. Republicans, some of them are in line with what Democrats are saying, but for the most part, some are standing behind the president. But there was a fact that was put out there that roughly 200 Republican members of Congress have yet to say anything about what the president actually said on Twitter. Uh, can you misinterpret what he said? Can you spin it? Well, I mean, it depends on who you are. There are some Republicans who are trying to spin this as, as saying, well, look, when the president said go back, he was basically saying go back to your districts and go back to your neighborhoods. Well, Democrats are saying, you know, how can you possibly read between any lines here when he was telling four women of color to go back? He, in his mind, was telling them to go back to where they came from, assuming that, you know, as Democrats and his critics are saying, the president was looking at this through a white privilege uh, uh, angle, saying that, you know, basically American citizenship is a white thing to look for. So th there are very few people uh, in the Democratic side and in the critical side of the president who can look at this in a different way. Uh, the fact that it seems whenever we get into a scenario like this, and there's certainly been many, the fact that we always have to kind of decode or try to figure out or read between the lines of what the president is saying, doesn't that say something? Well, it does. But what we're looking at right now is the president speaking like the president does, kind of unhinged and without any uh, without any bars or filters to go through. But this is also policy that's been or, or rhetoric that's been uh, spoken inside the administration for a long time. He has a very hard lined uh, immigration uh, analyst who sits at his side named Stephen Miller. And this is kind of the way that Stephen Miller views the world. So the president has people around him that are kind of uh, goading him into saying these things and egging him on to say these things and kind of, you know, leading him into this direction. So it's it's you know it's 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 difficult for a lot of people to read these tweets that the president is putting out because it does affect them personally just like it makes uh you know it makes the US kind of look a little sour in the world's eyes but you know this is what the president does and trying to you know decode it or or read between the lines or whatever he says at the end of the day the president says things and they ultimately may have consequences it just seems that whenever there's a controversy we always have to decode it or read between the lines it's never crystal clear it's always extremely gray which somehow allows him the leeway to escape responsibility. Well, it does. And because these situations are gray, it allows it to basically move on to the next issue whenever he decides to tweet something. There's still, uh, you know, questions being asked as to why the president made these tweets in the first place over the weekend. Was it because he wanted to change the narrative on, on these ICE raids that appeared to be uh, kind of a failed attempt under the administration? Was it he was trying to simply turn the page on, on any kind of negative news that was about him? This is what the president does. But when we decode it, when it's in this gray area, it gives the president an out because all he has to do is tweet something else about China, about NAFTA, about tariffs, about anything in the world. And that's what will become the focus. And what he said last time is going to be slipped to the side. The problem is with this one that he did over the weekend, with it heading to the floor tonight, with a resolution to condemn these words, this is going to continue for the next couple of days, no matter what he tweets next. Uh, interesting uh, article on Global News uh, on the website, uh, the cynical strategy behind Trump's attacks on minority women in Congress that uh, our co-worker Jackson Proskow has, has penned. And is this a strategy? Is this a strategy, Reggie, where and what is the strategy to paint the whole Democratic Party as these four people or, as you said, just a distraction from the other 
action that's going on around the White House. Well, there's a couple of ways that you can be looking at this. Yes, he's trying to paint the Democratic Party with this kind of far left face uh, of these four congresswomen who are kind of in stark contrast to what leadership under Nancy Pelosi looks at, especially when it comes to these kind of social democratic issues like, you know, health care for all and this this kind of lax immigration that that uh, that the president says that that they're uh, that they're going for. So it's a way to say, well, look, this is what the Democrats are, despite the fact that there are a significant number of Democrats who just have a differing view uh, as to what these four congresswomen have. The other thing that we could be looking at here is uh, some political gain for the president. This is something that he can drive home as a message to people on the interior parts of, of the country, the, the non-educated, non-college educated whites, which he really needs going forward into 2020. If he can drive this message to that indirect uh, to that direct voter, it could increase his chances of getting the victory because he sits at about 20 to 23 uh, percent popularity with non-college educated whites. He needs to get that number closer to 40 or 50 percent in order to guarantee that victory. So there is political gain for him to be able to put this kind of rhetoric on Twitter because there are people that are listening. And like he said yesterday, there are people that agree with him. Obviously, uh, the Democrats are going through the, the leadership process and whenever any party, uh, wherever you are, goes through the sorts of thing, there, there, there's lots of extension of what the party is and what their identity is and what they want to be and such. Um, and we've seen this sort of divide uh, the Democratic Party. Some say Biden too traditional, uh, Bernie too extreme, what have you. H- how does this play into all of that? Does, it appears this has brought the party together. Yeah, for a fractured Democratic Party right now who can't really get their uh, get their opinions and ideas straight when it comes to things like infrastructure or health care or immigration, they've all banded together on this one to say, well, look, what the president is saying right now is inappropriate and doesn't show what the true American values are, uh, you know, I- I- under the world eyes. Because, look, this is a Democratic Party that is going after the president as they try to find their one person. And this is a very uh, varied number of people that are on stage. You have people from all different races, all different backgrounds, different orientations. So they're taking this as not only a personal attack, but an attack on what America's basis, uh, based values are. So I think this is one thing that you will see Democrats come together on. It's going to not going to be enough for them to go forward on just this attack on the president, because again, this is a very fractured party, but it is nice to see them kind of banding together to go after the president, not based on what his policy is, but based on the moral character of the president right now. Uh, do you think this will change things? And I guess we can't really predict that, but will this matter next week, these series of tweets? Well, it, it could have continued fallout because there are going to be a growing number of people that are calling on Republicans to actually make some kind of comment. Because when you're sitting there with 200 plus members of Congress on the Republican side who have stayed silent, who are either embarrassed of what the president said or condoning what the president said, but they don't want to say anything out loud or they agree with the president. This is something that Democrats and particularly the the, the Congresswomen who were targeted are going to go after to say, what is the, the, the purpose of you staying quiet? So this could be something going forward. This is why this resolution is going forward tonight, because not only does it allow Democrats to condemn what the president said on Twitter, but it also uh, basically puts Republicans in their place and it puts them on the record for having to either vote for or against uh, whether or not they condemn the words that the president said. Uh, again, as you mentioned, Republican Party quite silent on all of this. Are they just hoping it all goes away? And- 
and the longer this drags on, will will Republicans have to come out and make a call either way? Well, they're probably hoping it goes away over the next couple of weeks because Congress leaves for a break in August. So if they can kind of get this uh, over with over the next couple of weeks, it allows them to go back to their districts and focus on what they need to deal with when it comes to the election next year for those that are uh, seeking to be reelected. But over the next couple of weeks, you know, 14 days before a break is a very long time for something to stay in the spotlight. And if this does stay in a spotlight, Republicans who have been quiet, who are going back to potential swing states that could be uh, in flux next year when, you know, that President Trump won that a Democrat could be grabbing. This could be something that Republicans have to deal with when they're talking to the electorate when they're back at home for the next couple of weeks. So whether or not they can deal with this over the next two weeks is one thing, but whether or not they come out and actually speak and put something on the record is another. Uh, You mentioned the ICE raids and this possibly being a distraction to that. Uh, Give us a bit of an update on that. How is that playing in the U.S.? Well, the president says that it was that it was an unbridled success over the weekend by saying that a number of people were detained, a number of people are set for deportation. The problem is that sources and critics are saying that very little actually took place. Uh, there were supposed to be upwards of 2,000 people that would be rounded up in this uh, this kind of ambush-style raid. Uh, we got word that very few, if any, people were actually uh, uh, taken into custody. Uh, we know that in New York, ICE uh, and immigration officials walked up to doors throughout Harlem and in parts of the Bronx and had the doors closed in their face because they didn't have any warrants to take people in. Churches are offering sanctuary. There are city and activist leaders that are putting together kind of hotlines and groups to be able to protect uh, migrant commu- or immigrant communities that are inside these cities. So the president says, yeah, sure, it was a success, but didn't give any numbers. And critics are saying, well, look, very little is happening right now, which is potentially why we saw him try to change the channel. Uh, in regard to the visits Vice President uh, Pence made uh, to, I believe it was a detention center in Texas, uh, w- w- you know, where men were obviously Obviously, uh, you know, in a, in a fenced in area, sort of speak, caged in, let's call it what it is. Um, and, and he was sort of stood there for about a minute. It, it was almost like he had a stone look on his face and he, he didn't he looked above everybody. He didn't really look at what was going on. How has that resonated? Well, Democrats are saying, look, the Republican uh, vice president went down to see what the situation was. Yes, they might have cleaned up a little bit to make it look like it was a little better than it was. But the vice president saw what the situation was, but he still went in line with what Republican policy is and what the president's policy is to say that these camps are in place for a purpose, that they're serving their purpose. And he was kind of hesitant or reluctant to talk about any of the negatives that were happening inside there and kind of moved on to say why the policy is necessary. So Democrats, again, are saying, look, there are a number of policies out there that are simply not in line with what we need to be doing to control the situation at the southern border. And instead of the vice president going down there and saying, well, look, what's happening in these camps is inappropriate and we need to deal with this. He simply said the president is right for continuing to have these people brought into cages because it's better for the American people. Um, here's another question, uh, you know, a reporter type question to, a, to a, a personal reporter who covers this stuff. And, and you know, obviously you've been down there for a while now, Reggie. But it just seems the amount of stuff that you have to cover in any one day is just is astronomical. What about the sheer volume of of stuff that comes out of this White House every day? It's 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 astonishing. Uh, sometimes you wake up and you don't have a clear idea as to where things are going to go throughout the day. And because then see... you know, as a reporter, you're following a story, but then it goes way off in another direction. Yeah, and this is a, this is a problem that we have down here a lot of times. Is we wake up in the morning, we kind of scan the news, we see what the bigger stories are going to be, and we try to focus on that. But all it takes is 140 or 280 characters in one tweet <laughs> to completely switch the situation around, and then you kind of have to scramble. But this is how it is day in and day out. And you know, sometimes you know you, you walk home with 
with a bit of a headache because you're not sure or the day kind of went by and, and you don't really grasp what's going on. But the kind of trove of information that we have to sift through on a daily basis is 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 mountainous and almost feels overwhelming at certain points, especially when you have a, an administration that kind of puts policy out there at a moment's notice and you have no time to try and dig into it. Would other White Houses be could other White Houses be called boring compared to this one? Well, it's possible that you could say that. I mean, like, look, is there, I can, just from the sheer volume of stuff. Well, there used to be this kind of, uh, you know, illusion of mystery around the White House because it was supposed to be, you know, there was the person leading the country. There were a lot of people in the administration and policy experts that were getting everything out there that the president wanted to get done. And you didn't focus on the minutia and the day-to-day uh, operations of how things were going. You know, when I came down here and, and Barack Obama was still in the office, we covered a lot of weather stories. We covered a lot of foreign policy uh, stories that were kind of happening, you know, anywhere in the world outside of the United States. And then every Everything kind of changed when Donald Trump came in because not only did he basically open up the doors to the White House and say, well, here's the way that things operate or here are the thing, here are the way that things are supposed to be operating. We were kind of thrown into this discussion and, and conversation and daily uh, kind of uh, barrage of here are all the things that aren't working right now. And we're just going to keep throwing things at the wall and, and see what sticks. And, and it, it becomes this White House is, is significantly more uh, open and potentially dysfunctional than other White Houses were, but this one is allowing you to see the dysfunction that goes on on the inside as opposed to the ones who used hmm. to try to cover it up with a press briefing. You know, whenever we talk and have discussions like this about whatever issue of the day is, you know, often we've said it depends who you ask, whether you ask a supporter of the president or someone who is a supporter of the other side. Uh, it always seems that it's divisive, which would allude to the fact that there's a 50-50 split. Half the country feels this way, half the country feels that way on any given issue. Any sign that that balance is shifting in either direction, either he's gaining way more power or he's losing it, or does it does it just seem to be a fringe thing that hovers where it is now. I don't know even if I would call it a 50-50 split because there are people who disagree with what the president does. There are people who disagree with, with what anybody yeah. in the Democratic Party does. But there's also this growing number of people who just can't deal with either of the parties that are in place right now and completely are trying to just uh, uh, push themselves away from the politics of Washington, D.C. and kind of looking at how things are happening inside the country. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say that we have 50% of people who are in agreement right, agreement right now because when you look at numbers going forward into the election, there's still a growing number of this independent group who, who's kind of going for whichever one just makes them happier, whichever one can kind of, you know, be different than what's going on right now. So numbers are one thing that we've learned to not pay attention to because we saw what happened with the election in 2016. Numbers didn't pan out properly. So it's, this is just a country of people who are incredibly exhausted uh, from the political news hmm. out there and exhausted from potential rhetorics that you hear coming out of the White House. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News based in Washington. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and Six. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, North Korea. What? North Korea. I was talking to Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, earlier on today. And uh, after we started talking about about the news of the day down there, you know, I asked him, compared to other White Houses, how how just the, the sheer volume of information that comes across your desk, just the sheer volume of events, of tweets, of of distraction on any given day is just it's it's unbelievable it's 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 just this vast amount of distracted information distracting information coming at us from all directions uh 
and, and we it wasn't that long ago with North Korea and Kim Jong Un. They were going back and forth, uh, and 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 comparing buttons and and fire and fury and all this sort of thing. And then of course uh, a big summit was held, and it looked like everything was great, but nothing really came of that. And now North Korea says it's uh, rethinking whether to abide by its moratorium on nuclear tests and missile tests and such, uh, especially when they see the U.S. and South Korea uh, performing military exercises as they do in the summertime. Uh, North Korea views that as preparation for an invasion. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper is with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and he is with us now. Elliot, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good afternoon, Scott. With so many controversial uh, events going on and, and so many controversial issues in the air, controversial balls in the air, is Kim Jong-un and North Korea even on Donald Trump's radar at this point? I want it on all of our radar. Anything having to do with the raising of the nuclear threat in our world, is the number one story, no matter what the other uh, enchanting diversions may be uh, coming out of Washington. The possibility of nuclear Armageddon, you know, the existential threat to our existence on the planet, that's the big story. Uh where is this now? At what stage are these negotiations now? What happened post-summit? Okay, well, just a quick review then. You know, that, uh, you and I were talking about at the time that uh, the, the fire and fury, the buildup of tensions between the Trump administration and North Korea really had reached a dangerous point uh, where an accident or miscalculation or spark could have led to something major. Korea can attack South Korea without nuclear weapons, uh, just with conventional artillery, artillery, and unfortunately with biological and chemical weapons. So that was a crucial period, and suddenly it all turned around with the summit in Singapore in June of 2018. And that was a big breakthrough in that there were some very vague statements saying, okay, we, we, we really love each other now, to quote the president, and um, things are really going to go much better. We understand each other. I, this, we really get along wonderfully, and my personal connections with him will change everything, except then when the next summit was held in Singapore, in Hanoi, at the end of February this year, everything fell apart because the very vague understandings that they thought they'd all reach together turns out they hadn't been on the same wavelength at all, and uh, basically that was a short-circuited summit, and that was a very, very dangerous uh, step, because at that point things could have fallen apart. They didn't fall apart. Things stayed relatively quiet until, as we know, we had this unexpected, uh, I guess it was a summit, a meeting uh, between the two leaders again just a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago now, when for the first time an American president set foot in North Korea. So they, what happened there is they agreed to get back on track. And what they agreed to get back on track doing, Scott, was we will now uh, continue with the meetings, the uh, cooperative meetings, the meetings to plan the next summit. And that's actually what was now held uh, initially uh, in abeyance. That is, uh, North Korea has now said, look, we're not even going to hold these preliminary meetings, these lower-level meetings, because 
America has resumed what North Korea said they wouldn't do, uh, and wouldn't talk about that, which is to have the kind of joint military exercises between uh, the U.S. and South Korea, which have been going on since 1954. So, again, this started with missile tests and, and Kim Jong-un lobbing missiles up uh, uh, in precarious situations. Uh, the rest of the world not happy with this. Uh, no missile testing equal, does that equal no military exercises between the, the South and the U.S.? Well, this is where the disagreement apparently rests. That is, the U.S. declared, Trump declared, that he would not be carrying on the traditional major exercises. They go on twice a year. Uh, they're called Key Resolve and Foal Eagle. And some of these were massive. With the, uh, the build-up time when uh, it looked like confrontation might be happening, America was sending their biggest weapons, B-52 bombers and things like that. So at that point, the U.S. agreed and North Korea heard them agree. They weren't going to do that anymore. What... Um, what apparently has happened is, and this is something you and I have talked about as well, that much of American policy carries on anyway out, outside of mm. and beyond the White House so that the operations of the Department of Defense, for example, carries on. They have agreed, uh, that is they meaning South Korea and the U.S., to have lower level, um, a scaled back set of the regular exercises, and that's what was, was due now to come in August, and that's what North Korea is saying is a violation. The U.S. said, no, we, we've, these are much reduced. This isn't the same thing. So what we think we agreed on, we're sticking to. And North Korea is saying, no, we think that this is a violation, and that's where we are today. So that being said, a reduction, will it be a much, much of a reduction in these military exercises, or will we not know that till August? Well, we don't know that, yeah. but uh, the announcement's coming out, and I've been following it as closely as possible, is that this is indeed a, a different a scale, right. but anything that North Korea says, hey, it looks like an invasion preparation to us, looks like an invasion preparation to them, and so even the low, uh, the low level, lower level uh, kind of exercises, and there was just the earlier exercises with South Korea and Japan and the U.S. in the neighborhood. These exercises are absolutely critical. The alliance is necessary. The, the stability that we have had in that region goes back to the American guarantees with South Korea and with Japan, security guarantees uh, that more or less has kept that peace. Scaling back, which Trump did unilaterally and rather shocked surprisingly to many people, saying, oh, well, then we won't bother. If you don't like them, Kim, I'll just stop them. You know, that yeah. caught a lot of us by surprise. And, um, but the Defense Department, uh, the two defense ministers met recently, uh, a while ago in March, and said, no, we're going to do this scaled-down version. We have to keep this kind of regular exercise going to be sure that we have the kind of readiness necessary in case of war. Will we see a scaled-down version of a missile test from Kim Jong-un? Well, the first threat is to suspend these meetings, which are necessary to lead up to a summit to, you know, to, to actually move forward on this. And the second, he's now saying, well, we might even go back to both uh, IC, ICBM tests and even nuclear tests. We have to factor into this something else. The North is in very dire uh, economic circumstances, and Kim, uh, one interpretation of his actions, mine actually, is that he had done what he said he wanted to do. That is, he wanted to 
carry on even more than his father and grandfather did, making North Korea impregnable militarily, these nuclear tests were completed. And then he turned to the peace initiative and said, I want to now turn to economic development of my country. And that's what uh, Trump said, great, we'll help you on that. And South Korea has always been willing to help on that if under the right circumstances. So uh, one of the things to factor in is that the sanctions and Mother Nature are combining to create grave economic pressure on the North. So are we seeing a repetition of the standard North Korean response? Others, uh, other uh, close observers have suggested this now, saying that what happens when he's in trouble at home, he raises the stakes. He says, I'm going to do something horrible and terrible. Hmm. The world had better come to my aid. I'll now back off uh, once you've paid me to back off by providing humanitarian assistance and other assistance, material assistance, because of the economic difficulties within North Korea. So it sounds like Kim Jong-un's growing impatient. Or desperate. Hmm. And we don't really know. There's a lot of speculation, oh, this is really going to, again, by the most informed observers, this is really going to strengthen the hardliners within North Korea, uh, who said this whole idea was a, this thing was a bad idea. I, I'm not sure I accept that, even though I respect the sources of the speculation, because, you know, there's no dissent in North Korea. <laughs> this is a family yeah. enterprise. But, uh, but the bottom line is that we are now in a more precarious circumstance today than we were you know, less yesterday. Uh, will we see this come to a head soon? Will this again return to the headlines? It's not impossible because uh, Mike Pompeo was, <laughs> was just touting these low-level, these prepar- you know, these these meetings that they were going to have at lower levels leading up to a new summit. And uh, remember, Trump had even said, "Why don't you come to Washington?" I mean, this would be an enormous boost for the Kim regime back home. I mean, he's never had this kind of mm. recognition, and uh, he's visited now with Putin and, and Xi Jinping. He's met several times now after no meetings for years. So how long will the sanctions regime hold? Is China really holding up to them? It looks like they are in large measure. Um, will this lead to a return to the earlier situation? Or what I suspect everybody will want here is an agreement to do a step-by-step, <coughs> sorry, I'm <coughs> freezing up here, uh, a step-by-step reduction. Mm-hmm. You agree to freeze, we agree to freeze, and, and instead of a big grand deal, it'll be step-by-step. I uh, can't let you go, Elliot, without asking you your uh, thoughts on uh, the series of tweets that has gotten the president in hot water, uh, talking about uh, four uh, progressive Democrats uh, within that party, obviously the party in the in on their way to choosing a new leader, divisiveness at this time, trying to figure out what they're going to do moving forward. Obviously, the president has uh, decided to to try to paint these four as the picture of of the Democratic Party, and in doing so, um, and I'm not quoting verbatim here, but basically said, "Go back to where you came from, figure it out, yeah. and come back and tell us how to do it." Uh, your thoughts when th- this makes me think back to my mother, who was an immigrant <laughs> from Scotland way back okay. when, and you know, people making fun of her and her saying to us as kids, Oh, they used to always say to me, go back to where you came from. This sort of statement really resonates with, with, with people. Does, does, does this change anything? Is he in hot water, which is how you began? And the answer is probably not. 
this changes one thing. The level of discourse in the United States has gotten even worse. Now, you, for the President of the United States not to do dog whistling, which has been uh, Republican presidents and candidates' norm uh, for a very long time. I mean, basically, he's reaping the benefit of a very long, long process within the Republican Party to cultivate the South and to be the voice of white America, essentially. But he brings it right up to the front. So in that sense, it's certainly changed. However, the analysis coming out uh, today seems to me to be, well, basically it's the same thing I come to, so I agree with it, uh, that this is really good news for him in, this, in the sense that all he needs to do is carry a few key states to get his people out to the polls to depress the vote of others, and he can get reelected. Mm. So this is not necessarily a bad thing for Donald Trump in terms of his reelection. All this does is is reinforce the negative side of the Republican Party supporters. Instead of leading positively, he's leading negatively. And his followers are rock solid with him. Still last I saw about 91%. If he can carry Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and he might, with his people showing up because they really, really like the way he behaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz Cheney, who's the daughter of uh, the Vice President Cheney, mm-hmm. and who's now a Republican member of the Congress and has, is in the leadership, has succinctly put it this way, Scott. The Democrats are the party of anti-Semitism, infanticide, and socialism. And that is a culture war, wedge-issue approach, Mm. which he has just reinforced, in which might just work. So he's painting the whole Democratic Party as these four progressives, yeah. So so he's saying, this is what the Democrats are. Don't don't let Nancy Pelosi fool you and sideline these people saying they're only four votes, which they are. Uh, they represent the Democratic Party, and they are just the worst possible people. They hate America. Uh, they they hate Jews. They hate Israel. They hate, 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 hate. Uh, anybody who loves America needs to follow me, Donald Trump. Uh, so uh, once the election rolls around, and let's just assume these candidates uh, in this movement doesn't get doesn't uh, gain ground within the party, and someone like a Joe Biden ends up winning, uh, and he's the he's still the the, the front runner at this point. Um, does all this disappear? Do we still remember this? Do we still talk about this coming election time? Because well, the at, at, the, at, about, at the end of the day, right. uh, if, if these four people aren't in position of power come election time, his Donald Trump's point is pretty much moot, but what he said isn't. That's going to hang around. Uh, or no. It's still effective in the sense that will the Democratic Party ever get its act together? Or are they looking for reasons to say, no, I'm not going to vote, my people aren't going to vote? So the Republican Party under Trump now is in an excellent position. They've got finances, they've got organization, yeah. they've got a leader. You make it a ton of money. A, a ton. I mm-hmm. mean, you, uh, far, far more than the Democrats. But beyond that, they also have an organizational structure. They have plans in place that dwarf anything that got him the, elected the first time, whereas the Democrats are facing... The real question of, do they, you, know, you and I have put it this way in the past, do the, do the Democrats want purity or do they want power? Hmm. And uh, Marine Dowd in the New York Times just wrote a blistering uh, column on this, uh, more blistering than she normally does, about how the uh, 
the gang of four, the, the squad. Yeah. But remember, they, it's not just them. They do lead a movement. They do represent the future in some sense. They're the young millennials, and, and yeah. they represent the face of America in certain ways. So will they, will they pursue a path that says we are as interested in winning and getting rid of Trump as we are in getting our people, our point of view, our stance, our party has to stand for the same things we stand for, and otherwise, um, you know, that's all that matters. Otherwise, our people may stay home. They may vote against. They may. So, will this party ever get its act together? Is the big question. Elliot Tepper has been with us, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're very welcome, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, a couple of 50th birthdays, anniversaries we are celebrating today. Uh, the Sugar Sugar by the Archies. I know. Andy Kim's going to be on a little later on to talk about that. But also, uh, today, this morning, uh, 50 years ago, Apollo 11 took off and uh, launched for the moon for the first uh, man landing on the moon uh, back in 1969. And uh, Mike Armstrong, Global National Quebec correspondent for Global News, has uh, completed a documentary, The Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf. And it talks about some of the Canadian connections in, uh, involved in the Apollo system, and Mike is with us now. Mike, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, pleasure. How big is this anniversary? Uh, uh, how significant is this to today, to people in, in 2019? I think it's just fascinating. I mean, it feels almost, looking back 50 years, as though it's something that happened out of place. Like, it was almost too early. They just didn't have the technology to pull off what they did pull off. It's, it's just fascinating. I mean, if you compare the computer that they used to guide uh, the Apollo to the moon, Apollo 11 to the moon, the uh, Apollo guidance computer, uh, it had about 12,300 transistors in it. Your iPhone or your, your smartphone today has about 2 billion. I mean, you're, uh, I, was, I spoke to one of the Canadian engineers who went down and worked down there for a decade in the run-up to Apollo 11, and he, he, he holds his phone in his hand and says, this has more computational power than all of the computers that we were able to use at NASA for 400,000 people. I mean, it just boggles the mind. How is, is space travel compared to uh, today to then? Um, obviously, it's, it's a good bit safer now than it was back then. But, but is there, you know, when we're watching the, the, the Soyuz rocket come down from the space station, you think, wow, this is almost as primitive as the Apollo days. Well, you know what? The Soyuz rocket is as yeah. primitive as, as the Apollo days because that's a ship that was developed in 1966. I mean, they've done improvements uh, but since then, but it's, it's basically the same rocket. Yeah. I mean, I, and I sat down with David Saint-Jacques, the Canadian astronaut who just came back in it last week, and I, I sort of said, you know, that's an old ship. Like, it, it's incredible. And he almost took offense and said, what you have to understand is, that, sh- that is a workhorse. Yeah. Like it, it, the reason they're still able to use it is because it was a great design uh, originally. Now, that said, David Saint-Jacques was at the International Space Station when the uh, SpaceX Crew Dragon arrived. So the, the first time another, literally the first time, another ship yeah. that's going to transport humans mm. has been in space. And David Saint-Jacques was the first person in to, to get into that. 
So it, it was sent up with nobody on board. It docked with the ISS, and then David St. Jacques was the first person to go inside it. And <laughs> his reaction was that it, it felt like, wow, this must be first class. <laughs> what did he say about his, his journey? What stands, right, out, it, what stands out for you? Well, for me, I'm the Quebec correspondent for Global. So I go to the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, just, uh, it's just outside Montreal. I've been doing it for yeah. 20 years. And David St. Jacques was picked 10 years ago as an astronaut, and he waited 10 years, like, well, nine and a half years mm-hmm. before he got to go up in space. And it felt, I told him last week, I said, it felt like you were the PR person. You just did speeches and in introductions and debriefs, and every time someone else did something, he was up in front explaining what they were doing. Yeah. And I said, there must have been a time when you said, this is what all the wait was for. And he said, you know, it was strapping myself in uh, into the Soyuz, and everybody that helps you get into the ship moves away because there's going to be a lot of fire coming yeah. in a few minutes. And he said, that's when I remember thinking, okay, wow. this, is, this is it. This is the moment. <laughs> wow. Uh, what did he say about coming back and, 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 and whether it's reentry or just getting used to life back down here on Earth? Well, yeah, he knew exactly what to expect. Uh, like, he, you know, every, people have done this. Chris Hadfield's been up and yep. down, spent six months, and he, so he knew what to expect. It was harder than he expected, <laughs> which is kind of funny. He said um, he was surprised that what happens is it, it gives you what he called space brains, mm. and you feel sort of dim. So he knew that his legs wouldn't work, you know, his, his shoulders, his arms. Uh, I think he said he could feel his tongue, which is kind of a weird thing. Wow. You, know, you go for, you go for say, six months, uh, your tongue floats, and then all of a sudden uh, you're down on the ground and mm. your tongue now has gravity. Um, but yeah, he said the, the, the hardest part or the saddest part almost was that here's your family and your loved ones who you can't wait to see and they want to party and you want to party and <laughs> you, just can't, you just can't do any of it. Yeah, I'll see you in a couple of months once I uh, <laughs> get back to normal. All right, getting back to uh, uh, Apollo 11 and the Canadian, uh, Canadian uh, connection, uh, this was just uh, after the time when, or a few years after the time when the uh, Avro Arrow was cancelled. Uh, a lot of engineers, uh, from what I hear at that point, then went on to work at the Apollo program. So talk about the Canadian connections. Well, they really did go all in one fell swoop to NASA. Basically, NASA starts up in 57, 58, and it's trying to expand. Uh, but there's one thing that happened, um, actually. It was Sputnik, the launch of Sputnik mm-hmm. by the Soviets, October 4th, uh, 1958. That was when the, the Americans went, okay, we're sort of dabbling in space, but now we've got a problem. We have to expand. That day, by the way, October 4th, 1958, was the exact same day that the Avro Arrow was unveiled. So it was wow. totally blown out of the water uh, as far as news w- went. Apparently, Avro executives were like, why are there so few journalists here? Mm. Um, there, was a, there was a bigger story. So then the Avro Arrow gets canceled several months later, and NASA knows that some of Canada's best and brightest are now available, and within days, they're working the phones. Within months, they're up in Canada doing interviews. And literally within two months after Black Friday, when some of these people lost their jobs, they are, they've already been approved for green cards. They've had their health checks, their security checks, and they're living in the U.S. with their families. Like, NASA wanted these people, and they made it happen right away. Uh, and it's just fascinating. They were, uh, they were considered alien foreign scientists, I believe, was the official classification. Um, but it didn't hold them back. I mean, 
there's a gentleman, Jim Chamberlain, who was chief of technical design on the Arrow, and he goes down and he becomes the head of engineering for Mercury. He's the project manager for, manager for Gemini, mm-hmm. and he becomes this very important troubleshooter on Project Apollo. He's considered one of the most brilliant people to ever work at NASA, and he was a Canadian originally from... I don't have my notes in front of me. I believe Calgary. Like, it's just a fascinating, fascinating thing. Owen Maynard, a gentleman from Sarnia, Ontario, who um, is, did the early sketches of the lunar lander, this bug, as he liked to call it, mm. the, the idea that instead of one huge ship that leaves Earth and then lands on the moon and then comes back, he said, no, we should do it with two stages, like a, a, a lander that goes down by itself, and that'll save us weight. And But Canadians were right there. It was... 10 years before Apollo 11. So it's not like they just showed up and they were a part of it at the last minute. They were a part of it even before Kennedy set the goal in 62 of putting a man on the moon and bringing them back. The Canadians were there. And it wasn't just the Avro... I get pretty excited by this stuff, Mm. sorry. (laughs) Uh, It wasn't just the Avro Aero people. Uh, We met a gentleman, just the most fascinating story you're going to ever hear. Um, He was from Vancouver Island, was studying in Ohio, became a doctor, he studied aviation medicine, and then NASA came knocking in 65. He ends up working with NASA as a flight surgeon, and they put him in the quarantine with the astronauts when they came back from space. Wow, so you have the wow. three most interesting human beings in the world, the people every, everybody wants to talk to. And he, he's the guy, if you watch the film tonight on the news or any night, it's going to be this week everywhere, mm-hmm. when you see the astronauts walk from the helicopter into the quarantine facility, there's a gentleman in an orange jumpsuit, and that's Dr. Bill Carpentier from uh, Vancouver Island, who now lives in Belton, Texas, the nicest guy I've ever met. And you know what he did? This is the, one of the most fascinating things. He worked extremely hard, so I don't want to make it seem like he didn't work very, very hard. He did. But at one point, at the end of the evening... Once President Nixon had already been there, once the blood samples were taken and the rock samples were, t- were put away and they'd had dinner and, and it was a little, little bit of downtime, he pulled out something he had smuggled into the mobile quarantine facility and he broke a rule. He pulled out a bottle, he mixed martinis, and the first <laughs> toast, the first toast that Aldrin and Collins and Armstrong ever had to say, congratulations. That was Dr. Bill Carpentier. Wow, I've got shivers uh, down my spine right now. Uh, <laughs> we talk, You talked about the space race and Sputnik and how Sputnik really catapulted this. Um, there was a lot of tragedy before we got to the Apollo series. There was, there was, a, we, it was very much pushing uh, this goal to the limit. Um, uh, talk a little bit about how dangerous this was. Mm, it, it's it is fascinating and. and they, it was Apollo 1, actually, where they lost three astronauts, including Gus Grissom. Uh, Is that on the launch Apollo. pad? Yeah, that it was the on fire, the launch pad. Yeah, the fire on the launch pad, yeah. It was, a, it was like a Friday evening. Like They pushed those, the testing that they were doing uh, past when it was supposed to take place. It was supposed to finish, basically, and they just kept going, no, we've got to get this test done, we've got to get this test done. It kept going, going, going. And then they lost three astronauts. Uh, but what it did, it's, and it's incredibly interesting, they never found out exactly what caused that fire, but they found out a whole series of things that may have caused that fire, and they corrected all of them. And so everybody from NASA back then looks back at that horrible tragedy and says, you know what, we don't know what would have happened down the road had we not discovered the other deficiencies um, after Apollo 1 and that tragedy. For example, Apollo 13, the one where... 
you know, they go to they go to the moon, but they don't land, and yep, they come yep. back, but they've lost a lot of their power and everything. is super interesting. Uh, at one point, they have, you know, the something is off. I believe the, the uh, one of the engines is off, and they have to turn it back on. But at this point, it's been off for days, and the ship is filling up with condensation from their breathing and yep. everything. And so there's water on everything. And so the astronauts talk about how they were extremely nervous that if there's water in front of them on the inside of the ship, then yeah. probably behind the panel there's water as well, and so is it going to start? Is it going to start? Will the switches work? But because of Apollo 1, and they had sealed the entire panel, so there was, as it turns out, no water behind the panel. Hmm. So one of the reasons the astronauts got back in Apollo 13 was because of what happened with Apollo 1. I mean, this was hugely dangerous, and if you watch Kennedy's speech, he doesn't just say we're going to put someone on the moon. He says we're going to put someone on the moon, and we're going to bring them back safely. And I'll tell you, I spoke to one of the Canadians who was on this advanced vehicles team, uh, sort of early 60s, um, Brian Erb, originally from Calgary, and he said uh, one of the things that he negotiated, they, they, one of the things they studied and they looked at was maybe we go to the moon, but in one direction, and we just right. give the astronauts a pill mm. and say thanks for your, you know, uh, wow. exploration. Oh man! And he said, but he said that wasn't politically uh, acceptable for NASA, so they decided to go the safe route. Uh, you wonder if they're discussing that in Mars, or if that was initial part of the Mars discussion, or uh, you know, no, that's just not an option anymore. Yeah, I don't think finding the volunteers, as weird as it is to say, I don't think finding volunteers would be that tough. Hmm. How will this week play out with, this was just the launch, what's going to happen when you get to the eventual landing day? Uh, you mean in news this week? Yeah, or do you as mean far on, as well, anniversaries and things that have been planned. Yeah, well, we've been doing, there's a bunch of stuff uh, I'm trying to keep in touch excuse me, keep on top of what Michael Collins is doing, because that's a gentleman who, despite being 88 years old, still has his fastball, and I'm very much looking forward to what he has to say this week. Um, as far as global goes... And he was, there, he was there Tuesday morning, correct? He was there this yes, morning for the, for the uh, anniversary of all this. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, it's spectacular. And as a matter of fact, um, later this week, uh, the Hornet, which was the ship that picked up the, uh, the astronauts um, out on the Pacific... Um, Bill Carpentier, the doctor from uh, Vancouver Island, is going to be back there sort of, um, you know, talking about what they experienced 50 years later. And this, this anniversary is hugely important because one of the things Bill will tell you is the 50th anniversary is probably the last one where they'll have a yeah. bunch of these people together. Yeah. And so it is, you know, it's bigger than the 40th and it's bigger than the 25th uh, and it's in a way sadder. But boy, you, you talk to these people, and I'm very lucky to do what I do for a living, because it's such an incredible thing that happened in 1969. And when you talk to Bill Carpentier or um, Brian Erb and these people that were there when it happened, there's no degree of separation hmm. to one of the greatest achievements in human history. And I, I, I find that fascinating. And I'll tell you how, how inspired my parents were. My family name is Armstrong. That was sort of set in stone. Mm -hmm. My first name is Michael because of Michael Collins. And my middle name became very close to being Edwin. Uh, but my mom <laughs> decided not to go with all three names. You know what? Uh, I was born in 1962. Uh, my name is Glenn Scott Thompson. Glenn after John Glenn, Scott after Scott Carpenter. They orbited the Earth that year. That wow, year. there you there, go. I mean, it, it, they, <laughs> that, there is the impact of the, that it had on society. Are we as mesmerized with space as we once were? 
I don't think so. Uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, and speaking to uh, some of the original, the Canadians that worked at NASA, they they sort of put it in context and said, once you got to Apollo 17, there weren't many journalists there, and the excitement yeah. had sort of worn off, and that's one of the reasons they stopped going. Um, that said, I'm pretty excited for, for uh, astronauts going back because, I mean, the, what they're going to be able to do with cameras and, and things like that now, it's pretty exciting. And, and I'd say within, you know, four or five years, we're supposed to be back there. And I was watching uh, the NASA administrator yesterday talking about the plans, and one of the fascinating things he talked about, he said the goal was that the next steps on the surface of the moon will be a woman. Wow. That's, that's who mm. they'd like to send back mm. first. Um, what is the purpose of another lunar landing at this point? I mean, you talked about how, and I think that was even uh, mentioned in the Apollo 13 movie, that even when that uh, rocket took off, there wasn't the interest of Apollo 11 uh, until, of course, it, it got into, uh, it came into difficulty. Uh, what is the purpose of another lunar landing? Is that more in regard to the Mars project and, and having a stopping point between A and B? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, for science, uh, there isn't a whole lot to discover on the moon. That's the way it's been described to me. But it is a place where you can go, have people live long term, assemble things that you send them and, and prepare for and launch onto uh, to leave for Mars. So that's sort of the purpose of going back to the moon, some sort of a, an outpost. But I'll tell you, if you look at Neil Armstrong and stuff that he said later in his life, and I actually had the chance to sit down his, with his son recently, he was disappointed. Uh, and in the interviews from the 60s and 70s, he fully expected that by 2000, there would be a permanent outpost on the moon, and that uh -huh. never happened. Interesting. Eh? Was I, I was really going to ask you if you had talked to any old astronauts about what they thought of the new program and the technology and how things have advanced. But I guess when you look back at what the goal was back then, I can see the disappointment there. It, it sort of stopped halfway through. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. Well, and there was a new focus. It became uh, the space station. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've, they've accomplished wonderful things with that. And it's done lots of science. And it's, it's closer than the moon. It's a little bit less complicated to get to. Um, but yeah, it's, it's perhaps a little less romantic as well. I, I, I mean, no offense. That but. being said, I mean, what Chris Hatfield did up there and, and the people he talked to, and uh, we were lucky enough to have him on here as well, uh, just prior, just after he landed and, and prior to taking off, actually, uh, when, he was, when he was in Russia. Um, and he seemed to create that relationship, uh, certainly with Canadians and space again. D does that transmit all over the world? Do, do every so often uh, astronauts identify, do people identify with astronauts and what they're doing up there? Is it, or is it just chatter when they go up or come down? I think a lot of the, what they do up there really is outreach. And it, uh, I get all the press releases from the Canadian Space Agency, and I'll tell you, uh, David Saint-Jacques was busy with teach, you know, speaking to schools and yeah. speaking to groups and stuff. It, it's, it's fascinating to see how much work they do in that. It's also uh, amazing to remember. I remember being pulled in from uh, playing outside with the neighbor's kids uh, and a mother saying, you guys got to watch this. This is history. And seeing those greeny gray shots of people in, 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 this, in this rocket compared to what we see now, man, it's night and day. Well, you know, we were watching, I was watching the Soyuz separate. And you, could, you could see the rivets on the wing of the space station. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, I, about a year ago, I, 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 I know it may have been the Hatfield trip. 
And I said to my son, you know what I'm doing today? And my son was I don't know, 12 years old. And he said, no, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to speak to an astronaut in space. Wow. And, and you know what my son's answer was? You've done that before. Yeah. Like, so, so I'm not sure they get that excited by space, not as much as we think they do, perhaps. Uh, they're not naming their kids after astronauts. That's, uh, you know. Not at the moment. So tell us what Global's doing and what we can see and what we can continue to see through this week. Yeah, I've been really lucky. We, we've been giving a, given a bunch of time where we really got to focus on uh, Canada's um, role or contribution in putting footprints on the moon. So all this week on Global National, we've got stories, uh, a different story each night describing it. Today we're working on sort of that link between the Avro Arrow. Uh, tomorrow we're doing um, the the actual what what the Canadians did while they were there. Thursday will be the uh, the story of uh, Dr. Bill Carponce we were talking about, and Friday sort of uh, reflections from astronauts. We sat down with Julie Payette, Mark Garneau, Chris Hadfield as well. Uh, and then this weekend, uh, quite exciting, uh, we have a short documentary, a half-hour documentary that's going to air at 7 p.m. on Global, um, the, the, the Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf, specific focus right drilling down on Canadians and their role in putting footprints on the moon. Uh, that's going to be at 7 p.m. on Global and 10 p.m. on History Channel. All right, Mike Armstrong's been with us, Global National Quebec correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching all this week for special coverage on the anniversary of Apollo 11 and, of course, the documentary The Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf. Mike, uh, great stuff. Thanks so much for taking the time, and uh, congratulations. Enjoy. Thanks a lot. Great conversation. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.